in the past couple of weeks, another this thing that I experienced that people called Scrum is bad post has gone viral on all the socials. Now, beyond the ad hominem and the widespread misunderstanding of how no true Scotsman works, there were actually some valid points in the original tweet and in the responses to it. Now, there was literally nothing in the criticism of Scrum that reflected what's recommended in the official definition of Scrum, the Scrum Guide, nor is any of it anything we would teach a Scrum team to do. Like, with only mild exaggeration, it, it felt a bit like fluorescent lights give people headaches. Every Scrum team I've been on uses them in their office, and it's terrible. Therefore, Scrum needs to die. I am exaggerating. It wasn't that bad. But the original poster displayed an impressive immunity to any response that pointed out that Scrum has a definition and that it doesn't include the things he was objecting to. For example, one of his tweets read in part, quote, I've read the guide, and whether or not what I mention is there is not relevant. If you read the replies, you'll see how many people dislike Scrum regardless of what the guide says. The guide is not what matters. Now, normally we don't pay much attention to these kinds of posts. They happen pretty frequently, and they rarely lead to anyone learning anything new. But in this episode, we're going to share what it was about this particular thread that stood out to us, enough to devote an entire episode to it. If you came across the post, let us know in the comments what stood out to you. I, I have to say, I have a strong aversion to this kind of social media post, which is why we often don't respond. Uh, these posts where somebody who seems to be capable of making a careful argument appears for whatever reason to be choosing not to, or even explicitly rejects calls and the responses to be more precise and logical about it. But in this case, there was so much energy, so much pain in the responses, we couldn't just ignore it. Among the developers in particular responding to this post, almost everyone seemed grateful that someone said it out loud. The resonance suggests that the terrible scrum with all of the baggage that the original poster experienced is common enough that for many people, this is scrum, despite any official definition. Many, perhaps most people doing something they call scrum are experiencing story points, bad meetings, confusing roles, and micromanagement. In fact, I have a family member that works in a large healthcare organization that is 100% stuck in this situation. Terrible, time-wasting daily meetings, micromanaged backlogs, tracking individual story points, and all of the misaligned incentives that reinforce that way of working. So it's kind of personal to me. For him and all the others experiencing this thing that their organizations call Scrum, it doesn't matter that none of this is how we teach Scrum, that it's not at all how we've used it on our own teams, or how we've seen it be a particularly useful way to manage complex work on hundreds of teams we've coached and observed. Maybe the brand of Scrum is so tarnished at this point that we should just stop referring to what we do by that term. We haven't done that yet because there are some elegant parts of Scrum, and we learned those from the Scrum framework, including the originators of it, and we kind of want to honor that history. But I think it's notable that with our really positive experience using and teaching Scrum and the history we have in that community, even we're considering whether to stop talking about it by that name. It highlights how bad most people's experience is. So where do we go from here? Lots of people are experiencing a really terrible way of working that they call Scrum, and that's pretty different from how we've experienced it. And so in this episode, we'll share three key takeaways from our interpretation of the post and its responses. Uh, the parts of Scrum we would change if we were in charge, and some scaffolding that we found particularly useful to help people start experimenting towards a more human-centric, effective implementation of Scrum. 
In terms of what we were able to pick up from the thread and our interpretation of it, first off, we have to agree that story points, t-shirt sizes, and the like are mostly useless in practice. Relative sizing can be a powerful tool, but I don't think most teams can do the mental modeling to stay in the relative space. So it quickly becomes absolute sizing with a layer of indirection, which is just pure waste. Basically, once you have a key for how many days or hours a story point is worth, you're getting worse than zero value from using points. So stop. (laughs) The best teams I've worked on or worked closely with all ended up moving towards just slicing items at the top of the backlog fairly small and then counting them. Uh, Another takeaway from the thread for me is that most people experience some form of ineffective dehumanizing process and structure in their work. And as Scrum became popular, it was probably almost inevitable that it would pick up a lot of this baggage or even just that the words from Scrum would be used in environments completely missing the spirit of it. When we learn a new thing, our first attempt to understand it is to say, oh, that new thing is kind of like this other thing I already understand and assume that's what it means. And I think that happens a lot when organizations adopt Scrum. Oh, the Scrum Master sounds kind of like a project manager. So let's give our project managers a new job title. And now we're using Scrum. And that's probably an overstatement of the thought process involved, but it is particularly difficult to adopt an approach that's significantly different um, that should lead us to changing big things like how we structure teams and roles, the work within those teams and the systems and particularly the incentives around all of that. If an organization has adopted Scrum and not made significant changes to those other key parts of the org after maybe a year, that's a pretty good sign that they haven't actually changed much more than the words. If you've followed our work for any length of time, you know that one of the things we value about Scrum is that it's a pretty minimal set of coordination points, roles, and artifacts to build a process around. It leaves a lot of space to experiment and find what works in your specific environment. In fact, check out episode 57, Why Scrum Works When It Works, for our take on this at more length. For example, Scrum says we should work in recurring time boxes. We should plan a reasonable amount of work to focus on in the upcoming time box, and we should try to structure that work to give us some meaningful value in learning as we finish it. It's on us to experiment with how we want to structure the work and how we go about predicting what will fit in the time box. For us, and for many of the teams and leaders we work with, that flexibility represents a great opportunity to make the work approach fit the context. But I can also see how Scrum's flexibility makes it vulnerable to picking up a bunch of unhealthy practices that don't fit the context, just because people want to have concrete answers for, but what do we actually do here? Yeah, I remember Alistair Coburn one time giving a talk where he said something like, Scrum is beautifully empty. Because of that, lots of practices attach themselves to Scrum like barnacles. And then in the talk, he specifically cites things like story points and velocity and even user stories as barnacles that have attached themselves to Scrum over the years. If you don't have space for experimentation for whatever reason, I can totally see how you can end up with things like story points and confusing roles by default. And I can see how tools like Jira or whatever can end up carrying a bunch of extra process with them. So we've started actually giving more concrete advice to teams that are getting started with Scrum instead of just expecting them to reason from principles. There's enough good experience with good Agile in the world, both our direct experience and others, that there really are good concrete starting places for experimentation. And we shouldn't hesitate to share those recipes where they exist. Uh, We'll mention a few towards the end of the episode. 
you know, I've often semi-joked that the most dangerous personality in the Agile community is that scrum master or coach who has exactly one experience with Agile and whose experience was successful. They're just going to try to replicate that experience in a lot of cases, probably without awareness about what was dependent on the context and what was universally applicable. And my guess is that this is the root cause for a lot of the baggage that Scrum has picked up over the years, the barnacles in Alistair's terms. It worked somewhere, and then it got copied over and over again in contexts where it didn't work. And I can even see that in my own experience teaching Scrum, that my first teaching of it was, here's how we did it on our team. And then over many years, I've had to sort of reason about, well, okay, here was the context that made it work there, and here's what's more universal. Now, as simple as Scrum is, as defined in the Scrum Guide, there are a few places where we're less aligned with that core Scrum advice. While Scrum does have an official definition, and I think it's important to acknowledge that and refer to it, uh, we don't believe that Scrum is perfect or the ultimate approach. But it is a specific thing, not just whatever you want it to be. Here, for example, are a few places where we have some disagreement with the Scrum Guide in practice. One of the things that always stands out to me when I teach Scrum is that there's a lot of unfortunate naming involved. Like, we're going to work in sprints in something that's supposed to be sustainable over the long term. But we'll set aside some of the naming challenges and focus on content. Um, I think the part that our team, our very first team that adopted Scrum, immediately deviated from, and it worked well, and then I've seen that work in a lot of other organizations, is that Scrum recommends that the product owner is a single individual. In fact, in early writing about Scrum, they called the product owner the, quote, single ringable neck. Uh, and that's a, that's a terrible, <laughs> that's a terrible image. Uh, who, who do we, who do, whose neck do we ring if things go wrong? Um, and so the product owner as one person I always felt like too big of a job, and I always thought it was um, not logically consistent to say that the development team, the folks that are developing the product, can figure out how to collaboratively distribute work and, and make decisions. But we can't do that on the decision about what to build. We need a single person to make that decision. So that's one area where we differ and where our experience has showed us that very few successful Scrum teams have that single product owner. Almost all of them the product owner role is done collaboratively, whether they name somebody as the final decision maker or not. Um, another one that we've sort of, I think I've changed my stance on this over the years, which is um, Scrum recommends that the Scrum master is a permanent full-time member of the team. And uh, most of the team research shows that teams benefit from expert coaching, which is one of the things that a Scrum master should help with, uh, but they don't need it all the time and they kind of need it when they need it. Uh, and so we've seen pretty uh, good results from Scrum Masters that help get a team up and running and then are able to step back either to a part-time role or to help additional teams beyond that, that single team. And then the final one, and this has been emphasized more in recent versions of the Scrum Guide, is that every sprint needs to have a sprint goal. Our experience with sprint goals is that they were useful sometimes and other times it was build the stuff at the top of the product backlog because that's clearly the most important thing to do. And what we found is that if you're doing backlog refinement really well, um, you really don't need a sprint goal because your refinement has already answered the question of what's the most important thing to do and why does it matter? And as Peter mentioned earlier, we have started recommending more 
concrete practices as starting points for experimentation within Scrum, which I think seems to be helping to avoid the problem of bad baggage coming along with Scrum by default. So a few examples of those, uh, which we've talked about in previous episodes, and we'll link to those. Uh, First, we recommend a backlog structure. Scrum is very flexible about how you do this, almost kind of hand wavy about it. But particularly for software development teams, we recommend a hierarchical backlog structure with some kind of big idea like a initiative, vision, product, something big gets split into minimum marketable features, which represent increments of value that are worth shipping and then split further into user stories. And we talk a lot about what makes a good user story and avoid some of the baggage around user stories. Um, In our episode on the product owner board, we talk about this structure and how you might even model that as a Kanban system. The other thing we talk about in that episode that is a concrete recommendation we give is that backlog refinement works better for most teams as a continuous process rather than an all team meeting. There are a lot of things about backlog refinement that can happen in smaller conversations every day throughout a sprint. Most of them don't require the whole team getting together for three hours and staring at the backlog and adding details to Jira tickets and things like that. And again, we talk about that a bit in that PO board episode. The other place where we're giving much more concrete recommendations than we ever did before is some basic agendas for the Scrum events. And we have several episodes where we talk about each of those. Here's how to do a retrospective well. Here's how to do a review well. And we're finding that kind of guidance is helping teams actually achieve the purpose of those events rather than uh, going through the motions of what worked somewhere but doesn't actually work for them. But these are all places to start experimenting from. They're not Scrum, which we emphasize with all our clients. I'll often say things like, you can totally ignore this backlog structure or pick and choose from it, and you'll still be practicing Scrum. But it is a decent place to start experimenting from, so you might choose to do that. This whole viral thread underscores the need to be mindful, uh, empirical, and human-centric about how we approach work. The kind of bad scrum that that original poster described is far too many people's experience of work, and it really should not be that way. We know of enough good scrum examples to be able to untangle those ideas, but we need to be aware of how scrum is vulnerable to ending up in this place by virtue of its flexibility. We want to hear from you. Did you see this thread that we're talking about? If so, what stood out to you? If you've managed to avoid this kind of negative experience with Scrum, what made the difference for you? Maybe that'll be helpful to somebody else. Share in the comments. And as always, we appreciate your help spreading the word about the Humanizing Work Show by liking, subscribing, and sharing the show with your friends. Thanks for tuning in.